Well, everybody, as we know, Christmas is only 15 days away, which is exciting for those who are organised, but uh, for those who aren't so organised. And I've got to say, my wife is very organised when it comes to Christmas. Um, all the presents are purchased and accounted for, and uh, I think she's had the Christmas tree up since Easter. She loves, <laughs> she loves Christmas. Where's she gone? How can I bless her without a present? Okay. So, um, yeah, it's all go in our household for Christmas, so it's very exciting. But um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to take a more of a, a circular look at the Christmas story. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take the opportunity to, to grab some Old Testament scripture, uh, some New Testament story with Jesus as an adult, and, and also look at Jesus' closest relative and pull these parts of the story together. Uh, and I'm doing this because there's a, there's a context that I want to create for you to understand the Christmas story in a way that I trust will be fresh and eye-opening for you. But before we do that, um, we also understand that um, you know, the story of Jesus and the three uh, wise men who visited him and how it is that, of course, these wise men turned up. Uh, three presents were given, so we assume there were only three men. And uh, I found out, I found a picture the other day as to why there were only three gifts, because um, other people had beaten them to the shops. And uh, so that's, that's an amazing photo, isn't it? Eh? Where is the Ministry of Transport in Osh? Eh? It's incredible. Um, I, I'd hate to think how many people are on there. But uh, the reason why there were three men and not three men and their wives is because we know that the wives were off shopping. And um, they were very ambitious about how much they should bring to the newborn king. And this has to be one of my favourite all-time photos of them getting ready to, <laughs> getting ready to visit baby Jesus. <laughs> um, but they ran out of traction uh, to get going. So, um, yeah, that's just brilliant. That is so good. So, anyway, seriously. Let's head back into Scripture. Let's roll the clock back 800 years before Christ and we come to the prophet Isaiah. And here, the Isaiah, here Isaiah is talking to the, the nation of Israel about its disobedience. And in its disobedience, Isaiah starts to speak forth this picture of the future. And he's saying, look, basically God is going to make things easier for you. And he says here, then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so this prophecy, this word of prophecy, talks about a time in the nation of Israel's history where God was once again frustrated with their behaviors. And we can sort of feel for God in this context because God provided a way for them to become his people. And uh, these 600-plus laws that defined them as separated from other people groups and how they live uh, gave, gave this nation a unique identity. Now, every one of you has a unique identity, and your families have unique identities. You know, this is just how we do things in our family. And that's a cool thing, but the people of God, in this case, the nation of Israel, had a unique way in which they were to fulfill their lives and they live in this covenant of, uh, of obeying laws that allowed them to be seen as the people of God. 
Just take, for example, one law not to work on the seventh day. That would have separated them out from all the other nations around them. Then, of course, their dietary requirements, etc., etc. And yet, they were not they're not able to fulfill the expectations. And so God says, look, there's going to be a sign come to you. The virgin is going to conceive a child, and he will be called Emmanuel. God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And so <clears throat> into this context, this child is going to be born. A child who's going to fulfill expectations, a child who has been long awaited for, and a child who everybody hopes would arrive in their lifetime. But I want to create the context by identifying a a group of people. I've mentioned this group of people some years ago uh, in a similar talk, but I've done some more work on this, and I I really think this is a key to unlocking our understanding of this birth story as well as Jesus' ministry. This word is called Anawim. Anawim is a group of people who are the poorest of the poor. Okay, They were the poorest of the poor. They lived often in the temple or they're often out in the fields tending the sheep because for the men, this was the poorest and the least of the least jobs to do. Anawim stands for those who are bowed down or they are the faithful remnant. Okay, When the pressure is on, when there's persecution, the Anawim are the last to, 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 to stand for God. I want to describe this group to you by using this, this description that I found um, on a, on actually on a Catholic website. It says here, the Anawim are the poor people of the Old Testament. They can be found all over the world, but not all poor people are Anawim. Specifically, these are the people who look to God for everything. For whatever reason, they have experienced that life isn't fair and that they shouldn't expect their rights to be respected. They are strangers to people who have made it in this world. They do not belong to the kingdoms of this world because the kingdoms of this world haven't accepted them. They are outcasts in the world of power, prestige, and possessions. The world pays no attention to them because they can't be exploited for anything. The Anawim usually have nothing that the world wants. They often live in total poverty, but they also live in total freedom. They are attached to nothing and no one, except God, their family, and a few people that they share life with. They have eyes to clearly see what is important. So it's a unique people group. Not just the poor. We're not talking about people who are poor, because poor will always be with us, as we're told. But these are people who are poor and have a purpose. And their purpose is in their poverty, which might be created by circumstances or created by choice. They are there to serve God. And they will put God first. And as this writer clearly says, when you put God first and you have nothing else to give, then no one's going to exploit you because there's no advantage in exploiting you. And so here these people are set apart for God. So the question now we want to answer is, who were the Anawim in Scripture? Well, the first the commentators say is the person of Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. See, within the Gospel narratives, we don't have any record of her family life, of her home, of her parents. What we do know is that she was a modest and humble, God-fearing young woman, probably somewhere in the age of 13 to 17. She was raised in Nazareth, and there her fiancé, 
was Joseph. Joseph, we know, is a carpenter. So we could only imagine that over a period of time as Joseph came in to worship in the temple in Nazareth, in the synagogue, uh, he would have seen this, this young woman and he would have been impressed by her godliness and her humility. Clearly a, a characteristic that he himself had, even though he was not Anawim, but within the context of being a, a, a tradesman, a labourer, he saw in her something that he found wonderful. There were other people in Scripture, and this is, again, like I say, we're going to project forward now a little bit past the birth of Jesus to find more people who fit this category of Anawim. And uh, the other two that we're going to look at briefly here are Simeon and Anna. And we come across Simeon and Anna eight days after Jesus is born. Uh, In custom with uh, the rites of circumcision, Jesus was taken to the temple on the eighth day where he would be given a name and he'd be circumcised. And so here we have these stories of Simeon and Anna, two people who lived within the temple who were Anawim, says here. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You want that word consolation? Think of the word comfort. Comfort of Israel, somebody who would bring comfort to them. And the Holy Spirit was on him. That's a very powerful statement. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. Sorry. Yes, that's right. Sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Just look at that last line for a moment there. Shows you how accurate this prophecy is this old man. And what he's saying here is that there's a light now of revelation for Gentiles. In the day, Jews didn't care about Gentiles. Jews were outside of the family. Gentiles were everybody else who wasn't a Jew. Okay, And so here he's seeing that this, this child is going to be a revelation to the, Jew, to, the, to the Gentiles, a gift from the Jews. And then talks about being the glory of your people Israel. Now, try and contextualize that for a moment. Who would represent or who would be the glory of the nation of New Zealand? Maybe uh, Sir Edmund Hillary? Would he be the glory of our nation at one level? Uh, Maybe in politics it would be Helen Clark. Okay, Rugby, it would be Colin Meads. who drove past his bronze statue the other day in Tikawiti. But what we're talking about here is the pinnacle the ideal, the greatest representative of that nation's aspirations. And so this child is going to fulfill that, is going to be the glory of your people, Israel. So you can see the prophecy coming forward here. You can see how it is that this child is going to be unique. But let's try and contextualize this a little bit more. Simeon's this really, really old man. And uh, he's been told that before he dies, he's going to see the Christ He's going to see the Messiah. And we could imagine a very, very busy temple, couldn't we? With people coming in and coming out. And there's this old man. I'll take advantage of these stairs. This old man, Simeon, just watching the crowd. And the Holy Spirit is speaking gently to him, saying, you remember when I told you you'd see the Lord's Christ? Can you remember that? 
well, today's the day. And then he sees this young, tender couple coming through the temple doorway, and he's, he's looking at the child that they're carrying, and that the Holy Spirit just prompts him, saying, this is the one. And how many, literally how many thousands of children would have walked past the eyes of Simeon over decades? And I wonder, whenever he looked at a child, whether he thought to himself every time, is this the one? Is this the one? And then he's prompted and his old bones lift up. And he, and he, and he follows this child. He's seen the parents. They've never done this before, so they're probably a little bit bewildered about what the next step is. And Simeon goes over and takes the baby out of the parents' arms. And he starts to pray. And he starts to prophesy about whom this child would be. And the reason why he could do that comfortably without being seen as some stranger doing this is because he was Anawim. He lived in the temple. He was an old man, known by no other reason than he had this special relationship with God. I imagine he's the sort of guy who probably didn't say much, but when he said something, it was worth listening to. And of course, the story comes through with a double witness. Uh, and a double witness in Jewish, uh, Jewish legal law is really, really important. That's why you find these two people, Anna as well, having this interaction with Jesus. And it says here that there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84 she never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So again, we've got a scenario here where it's the, the poorest of the poor, but with nothing else to have in life except God himself. These were the people tuned into what the Holy Spirit was saying. And so after Simeon had said what he said, Anna goes in there, this elderly lady, and starts to pray and prophesy over this child. And it said that Mary stored all these things in her heart. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But it's a beautiful picture of this poor community. Serving one another and putting what is the only thing and the most important thing into each other's lives. That is the blessing of God and the will of God being seen and being known. This poor young couple coming in to dedicate this child. This poor temple-dwelling prophets and prophetess coming in and meeting them under the unction of the Holy Spirit and praying together. Isn't it a beautiful picture? It's a beautiful picture because what we see in these two is a spirit of prayer and intercession upon them. Where out of that unique relationship that they have with God because there's no other distractions, they have the ability to identify who the Christ is and they publicly proclaim that this child is going to be the Christ child. So, what does this mean for us now when we look at the ministry of Jesus? We see this unique beginning, but I want to take us now to a season that's probably 30 years on, 31 years on from this season, the season when Jesus is now in his ministry life. And he's on this mountaintop, and he brings what is classed as the best sermon ever ever said or ever written. And uh, he starts to speak to the people around him. And he starts to talk about who is blessed and who is not. And he raises this well-known piece of scripture. And he says, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we first read this piece of scripture, we get the impression that Jesus is talking about a, uh, a new kingdom, something that's never happened before, a new group of people who are going to be raised up because Jesus is present and this is what the kingdom of God looks like. But now that we understand who the Anawim were, we stop and we look at this in a completely different context. Jesus is talking about a present and future reality when it comes to whom God will be blessing. Because we see the Anawim in this story, don't we? We see the Anawim in this scripture. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, those who hunger. Jesus is not just talking about a future kingdom. He's talking about a people group who have a spark of what it is that this kingdom already looks like within them. And we see this throughout Scripture, that Jesus takes the present and magnifies it and says this is, what more of, this is what the future will be when we have more of the same. John the Baptist did exactly the same thing when he called people to a baptism of repentance. Repentance and baptism was already a well-established part of the tradition of culture and religion within the day. John the Baptist just called them to a specific place in a specific time. And here's Jesus taking what he has become because of what he has learned from those whom he was growing up with. And here we find him speaking now these words that summarize the Anawim, but give us a picture of what the future kingdom can look like. Does it make sense? We're starting to see how this, this Anawim is a key to unlock so much of the culture that Jesus was surrounded by as a child. So, of course... Being good Protestants, we, um, we don't talk much about Mary, being good Protestants, because you know, good old Protestants, what we've done is we've thrown the baby's mother out with the bathwater. Yeah? We throw the baby out with the bathwater. We throw the baby's mother out with the bathwater. Because we just sort of operate on this pendulum swing a bit, don't we? Because in some circles of Catholicism, uh, you'll go into churches and you'll see a huge picture of the Virgin Mary and a very small picture of Jesus. And so there's this adoration of the divinity of Mary, which is outside of a Protestant main frame of thinking, outside of Protestant doctrine. So what we do with Mary, just to prove the point, is we shove her way out here on the other side of the pendulum, right? And yet when we look at this context of, this, of the Anawim, what we find here is that Mary now fits perfectly into this, this setting because of the way that she is described. And, and so we find Mary's song describing her setting and describing her, uh, essentially her personality, her state of heart and her state of mind when she declares whom she is and what God has done for her. We see here, and Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
For he had been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. You can see in here how it talks about he fills the hungry. hungry. He brings down the rulers from the thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Okay, Humbled is mentioned twice. In the second line there, it says that he is mindful of the humble state of his servant. That's Mary he's talking about there. So we're talking about a community that raised Jesus, that were the poorest of the poor, who had values that come out of having nothing but God and God alone as your, your very reason for being, as your confidence, as the one who fulfills all your hopes and dreams, as the one who provides in every conceivable way, because there is no other way. This is the community that raised Jesus, and we see it in his in his, uh, in his mother, and we see it in those who are closest to him in that temple setting. So it's no surprise to us to find that the birth of Jesus is recorded for us in a story that is very, very humble by design. By design, by the design of God. Now commentators can understandably look at how it is that Jesus was born in a stable and say, this just wasn't right. They should have deserved more. But to be quite honest, from what we can see of this group of people, they didn't expect any more, and what they were given would always be enough because they're used to having enough or making enough out of the enough that they had. Whatever it was, they would find that it would do because their desire is to serve God and meet his will as opposed to meet their own expectations of what it is that they feel they deserve. So we find here Jesus is born in a stable. That's no surprise and no problem to them. No problem to them. So what they did is they took swaddling cloth, and we know what swaddling cloth is. It's the cloth that's left there for the future when somebody is to be embalmed in death. And they take the swaddling cloth and they wrap the baby Jesus in embalming cloth. A picture and a sign, of course, of what his future destiny will be, where he'll die for the sins of the world. And then they lay him in a manger, which is essentially a, a cattle trough. And, uh, and there, the king is presented to the world that he came to save. But of course, we should be no surprise at all that it was the shepherds who come and visit, for they too are the country version of the Anawim. To be a shepherd was to live in a very low-caste, high-risk life, Low caste because the shepherds were, the, the, shepherds were the, the poorest of the poor, looking out for somebody else's sheep. But high risk because animals would come and, and steal the sheep, kill the sheep, and it was, a, it was risky business looking after sheep. But God decided that the angels would tell the poorest of the poor in the rural community to go and visit the newborn king who's come to Bethlehem. And so we're given this, this picture, and I, I specifically found this picture because I think it represents that first night or two after Jesus' birth very, very well. See, it 
quite a while before the wise men turn up. But that very first night on Christmas night, it was a community of the Anawim, a community of the poor, a community of those who didn't need any more than God's presence and God's reality in their lives, a community of people who didn't aspire to anything more but than to know the will of God. And there they had nothing that could be taken away from them, nothing that they could be tempted by, nothing except the will and the purpose of God being outworked in their lives. So I like that picture. I think it's a beautiful picture of what Christmas is meant to be. Christmas that is for every person, filled with remembrance, filled with understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Why don't we stand? Father, we are grateful that we can see this foundation through a group of people whose eyes were fixed solely upon you. A community who had nothing more than the power and the presence of God in their lives. A group of people who aspired to have nothing more than your presence and to hear no other voice except yours. This community that historians have called the Anawim are a community of people who have been brought together because they desired you above all other things. And so, God, we we celebrate the birth of Christ and this community of people that presented him to the world. We thank you, Lord, that just like any child, in the foundation of their discipleship, Lord, they will come to understand the values of what it is they were surrounded with. And so we see, Lord, at the Sermon of the Mount and then ultimately the cross of Christ where everything was laid down because you come first. So God, we thank you for this picture of Christmas, this picture of humility, picture of love, picture of sacrifice that gives us the true story of Christmas. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.